Matthew 18, starting with verse 1 through verse 10. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and praise you for this reading of your word. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the work of Jesus Christ in teaching and leading us, for his following us and pursuing us with his love, for his determination to save us even at the cost of his very life. We thank you for all these things. And Lord, we ask that you would teach us. We recognize that our hearts are so sluggish, our eyes are so dull, and our ears are half stopped. And we pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes to this text. Open our ears that, Lord, we might see wondrous things from your law this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would shape and mold us, that we would be changed uh, by this text this morning. To these ends, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Our text this morning, I've chosen to review the first nine verses. That'll become apparent, I think, as we go, hopefully. But uh, just as a matter of review, it was uh, several weeks ago now when we were looking at verses 1 through 9. But uh, verses 1 through 9 are pretty important to verses 10 through 14. And uh, if you heard the, the messages uh, several weeks ago, you'll recall that this incident that is taking place uh, takes place in one of the real low spots of, of the disciples' walk with Jesus. Uh, they had been uh, traveling along and arguing with one another about who is the greatest or who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and Jesus hears all of this, of course. He's aware of all of this. And he asks them, he says to them, what are you guys talking about? And it's kind of interesting how they answer. You'll recall I pointed this out last time. They answer by, by asking a question. Uh, and the question kind of conceals what they're doing. At least it's an attempt to. They simply say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, they don't come out and say, well, we've been, we've been uh, kind of arguing with each other, and I kind of think I'm the greatest, but uh, these guys don't believe so. They think they're the none of that business. They simply ask the question, 
Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And uh, notice the character of Jesus here. Uh, It's quite remarkable how Jesus responds. We know from the word of God, from teaching elsewhere and passages elsewhere, that uh, God finds this kind of thing very grievous. Uh, This is a very hideous kind of thing. There's many verses such as uh, verses like God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verses like that. But yet Jesus, notice how he responds to this dreadful situation. He uses it as an opportunity uh, to to lead the disciples in a better course. Uh, He simply uses it as an opportunity. Uh, His love for his people is so remarkable. And you'll recall, how does Jesus begin to lead the disciples in a better course? He makes use of an object lesson. And he calls a young child to himself. The child's probably not more than two or three years old. Um, you know, think about Adeline's age and uh, calls the child uh, to, him, to himself. And he says, listen, fellas, uh, unless you become like this child, you, you can forget fussing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You're not even going to get there, is in essence what he says. Now, in doing this, he's not calling us to be childish. Uh, He's calling us to humility, is what he's calling us to. And it's a humility that depends on God for all things. A humility that trusts in God. It's a humility that that really is uh, so encapsulated with God uh, that that it it follows God uh, whether he or she understands what God is saying. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this particular point uh, earlier in the week, and uh, there's a popular TV show that's out right now. It's kind of like a James Bond show, um, Person of Interest. Does anybody watch that show, Person of Interest? Um, it's about this, the government builds this machine, and this machine is hooked to all these cameras, and it's able to see everything that everybody does. And the machine kind of takes on a life of its own, and if you watch the series much, um, very much, the machine takes on a godlike character. It's quite amazing, actually, uh, how many biblical themes there are in this. They're not trying to be biblical. Don't misunderstand me, but the biblical themes are there. And there's one character whose name is Root, this woman. She is so entrenched uh, with this machine. She loves this machine so much that her life is all about listening for the machine to give her her instructions. And sometimes the machine will tell her just to go somewhere. She has no idea why she's going, but she doesn't care. The machine told her to go, so she goes. And she waits until she's at that particular destination, and the machine tells her more. And it's, it's the, the, you, you can see if you watch the program, uh, that, that is a, kind of an illustration of the humble walk where they have with God. Uh, to be so caught up in God, to be so trusting in God uh, that uh, His Word guides us and that His love and His presence consumes us. That's what Jesus is calling us to here. Now, do the disciples get this? Uh, eventually, uh, they don't get it in this, particular, um, in this particular incident. How do we know that? Because as we continue to study through Matthew, when we get to Matthew chapter 20, we're going to find out that this whole thing starts happening all over again. Uh, no, they don't get it right away. But again, that points to the patience of Christ, doesn't it? I mean, is there anybody in here this morning who's not thankful that Jesus 
is patient. <laughs> I am so thankful that Jesus is patient. Uh, where would we be without his patience? But, but let's not presume upon his patience. What's Paul tell us in Romans 2, 4? He says, patience is meant to lead us to kindness or to, to salvation, to repentance, if you will. Let's not presume upon that patience. It's meant to lead us to repentance. And again, we look at the character of Jesus. In the midst of this object lesson, he still has the child near him. And if you look at verses 5 and 6, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it'd be far better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the sea. Um, it's a very strong statement, isn't it? Uh, for that to be an improvement. Uh, it's going to be so bad that this would be an improvement upon the situation that a billstone tied around your neck and you tossed out into the river. Uh, I, 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 I think that's pretty bad. Um, and this brings us to our text this morning, uh, to verses 10 through uh, 14. And what I hope to accomplish this morning, with the help of the Holy Spirit, is really to, sh to show three things. There is an overarching uh, 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 point to all of this. I think that verses 10 through uh, 14 really demonstrate God's care for us, God's care for His children. And there's a few points underneath that that I would like to develop that help uh, really um, uh, develop that point. And it, it's a wonder of being found, which I'll explain in a few moments. And of course, a passion for the lost. So we see the care of God for His children the wonder of being found, and a passion for the lost. Let's start with the first. If you look at verse 10, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Um, to despise someone or something is to regard that person or thing as inferior, uh, to regard it as of no value, or to regard it as worthless, or to uh, show contempt for it. And... Um, Jesus is saying, basically, do not look upon these little ones uh, in this way. Now, the next question that we're going to probably be asking is, okay, who are the little ones? Uh, we're not to despise the little ones. Uh, who are the little ones? And the context answers that question. If you back up to verse 6, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones, you see the phrase there? And then he's, he specifies who they are. Uh, one of these little ones who believe in me. Uh, he's speaking of true disciples here. The little ones are true disciples, true believers, true children of God. Uh, those are the little ones. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is do not despise any of my true believers. Uh, do not despise any of my true disciples. Do not despise my children is basically what he is saying. Now, uh, I happen to think that to be despised has got to be one of the most awful experiences that we can have. And, and unfortunately, we probably have all had a turn at that. Uh, to be regarded as inferior by a person or a group of persons, especially if it's someone who you really want to impress and you really want their respect, uh, to be regarded as worthless or of, uh, uh, you know, of no or little value, um, that's awful, isn't it? I think we probably have all had our turn at that. Uh, now, if we're going to follow Christ in this world, uh, Jesus makes it very clear that uh, there are going to be people who despise us. 
Um, we might ask the question why that is. Um, um, John Broadus, who was a pastor in the 19th century, um, he asked that question, and I think he wrote very insightfully on it. He asked the question, why are Christians so despised? And uh, his answer uh, is that many of them are not of the most educated stock. You know, if you think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians where he says, listen, not many of you were noble birth. Uh, not many of you were wise, speaking of the believers in Corinth. Uh, but God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. Are you familiar with those texts? Uh, many of us are, 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 are not um, necessarily really smart. Um, but you remember what I said a couple of weeks ago along these lines? That the average believer, the true believer, knows more about this world and how this world works than the most sophisticated and educated yet unbelieving scientist. So not many of us are exceedingly smart, exceedingly wise. Uh, most are poor, John Broadus says. Most are poor. Uh, I think if we were to list all the names of all the true believers that are alive right now, probably an overwhelming amount of them would be poor. And that makes good sense because what does Jesus say? He says it's easier to get a camel through what? The eye of a needle than it is to get a rich man into the kingdom. It's, it's possible for God, it's, it's, but uh, we have a tendency, uh, when everything's going right, that's usually not when we're looking for God. We want to set up heaven right here and right now is what we want to do. And by the world's standards, all of us are rich. I don't know if you realize that or not. We're all rich. Everyone in this room is rich by the world's standards. And I think that's one of the reasons why Christianity is so weak in the United States. That's why it's so weak. Broadus continues, he says that they eschew fashionable vices. The true believer is not going to be uh, following the, the fads and the, uh, the, the fashionable vices, whatever might be uh, in vogue. No, they're, they're, they're following Christ. They're following the Word of God. And that can bring a lot of ridicule upon you, can it? Um, their seriousness can be easily ridiculed. Their humility can be regarded as mean-spirited. Their goodness can be represented as hypocrisy. Their faults attract attention by contrast. And they often incur reproach through unwise actions. Yes, it's true. Oftentimes, we do unwise things. Even though our hearts and intentions are good, um, sometimes we're misguided, aren't we? Uh, that is true. That's the end of Broadus' insights there. Um, Jesus is clear about all this up front. He, he says in John 15, verses 18 to 20, He says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Remember those words, those familiar words. Um, Jesus was despised by the world. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus felt the pangs of being despised. But all of that said, What's going on in our text is that true believers are despising each other. 
it's not the world despising the true believers. We expect that. We can't really do anything about that. Jesus is warning us that's going to happen. But what's going on in our text is the disciples are despising one another. Now this we can change. And this Jesus is calling us to change. When we're arguing and fussing about who is the greatest, then we're looking, if we believe we are the greatest, then we're looking upon our brothers and sisters in the faith as being inferior to us, aren't we? As being less in value to us. And that's despising. You see, you see how verses 1 and 9 fit with verse 10 and, and following? Uh, when we're uh, harboring these critical spirits for one another, when we're criticizing and, 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 and lifting the faults of one another up, what are we doing? We're despising one another. And this is what Jesus is saying must stop. And the wonderful thing about, about Christ is he doesn't just give us commands, does he? He always gives us powerful arguments for those commands. And this is what he does. Uh, if you look at the rest of verse 10, he says, in fact, for sake of context, looks at all of verse 10. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And then he begins arguing. He says, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is a remarkable verse. They're angels. The Bible teaches that there are angels whose assignment is to protect us. Did you know that? There are some who deduce, deduce from this passage and a few others in Scripture that, that every person has a guardian angel. Um, I, I don't want to offend anybody here, but I, I don't think the Bible really teaches necessarily that we each have a guardian angel, meaning an angel that is specifically assigned to each one of us. Uh, I don't think that's exactly what the Bible teaches, but what the Bible does teach is that there are angels who are assigned to watch over us and protect us. Uh, I don't know that it's necessarily we each have our own guardian angel, but there are angels watching over us. In the course of preparing for this message, I, I read a comment that was made by uh, R.C. Sproul. Uh, he was commenting on these verses, and he said that uh, most of us, being Christians and believers, have been protected by these angels more than once in our lives if we've walked with Jesus for any amount of time. Isn't that a remarkable thing? That we have been protected. We're 99.9999999% of the time unaware of this. But that we're being protected by angels who have been assigned by God to watch over us. We don't talk about that much. But it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Now here's the argument that Jesus is making. Whether we have a guardian angel or not, there's angels watching over us. And Jesus says, listen... These angels have access to the Father. In other words, so when you're despising each other, you need to remember that that person you're despising has an angel or has a group of angels that are watching over them who have direct access to the Father. You see the argument? But Jesus goes further than that. If you look at verse 14, he says, It's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's not my, my Father's will. So we see, you see the Father in view. 
And we can even go further than that if we look at the greater context of Matthew. In the next few chapters, as we continue studying, we're going to see that Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. Why is he going to be crucified? Because he's going to give his life. He's going to shed his blood for who? His little ones. Every single one of them. No matter how low the world may view them. Jesus loves them so much that he sheds his blood for them. Let us not despise them. It's a powerful argument, isn't it? It's a powerful argument. Jesus is communicating his powerful care for sinners here, isn't he? Can you see that? The next thing I, I, I want to show is the wonder of being found. The wonder of being found. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, what do you think? Now he's speaking to a, people who have sheep. He's speaking to people who raise and, 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 um, and shear sheep. They're shepherds, many of them. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Now, the Bible often compares us to sheep. If you know anything about sheep, that's, that's not a compliment. I don't think that's how we would prefer to refer to ourselves as sheep. I'd like you to think of me as a sheep. I don't think any of us are going to be likely to say that, but that's what the Bible says about us. It compares us as sheep. Isaiah 53, 6 famously says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned uh, to the left or to the right. And this language is the language of treason. It's the language of rebellion. Uh, it's not simply the language of missing the mark as we sometimes think, well, I missed the mark. No, no, actually it's the language of treason and rebellion is what it is. Uh, when we wander aside, what are we actually doing? We're actually saying, no thanks, Lord. I, uh, I don't want to do things your way. I want to do things my way. And we usurp the throne of our lives for ourselves, and we become the king. We become the sovereign. That's rebellion. That's treason. Now, um, God's care for us is experienced by this wonder of being found. Think about it. What king on this planet would go in search of a bunch of rebels? Oh, I say, well, that's easy enough. Yeah, kings will search out rebels and those who have committed treason. Yeah, but what do they intend to do with them when they find them? They intend to destroy them. But that's not, that's not what Jesus is doing. What is Jesus doing? He's pursuing rebels. He's pursuing those who have committed cosmic treason with the intentions of doing what? Saving them, blessing them, showering them with every spiritual blessing that's in the heavenly places, if we want to use the language of Ephesians 1. It's quite amazing, isn't it? It's quite amazing. Have you been found by the great shepherd? Has Christ intruded upon your life with his love? Has he won you with his love? Are you his? Has he transformed you? I have another quote here who's, Quotes from one of my favorite, favorite preachers, if we're allowed to have a favorite preacher. 
On April 28, 1889, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said to his congregation in his sermon that Sunday, he said this, quote, I have often heard it said by those who come to confess Christ and to acknowledge his love to them that they are struck with the wonder that they above all others should be doing any such thing. Let me repeat that. Spurgeon says, I have often heard it said by those who come to confess Christ that they are struck with the wonder that they should be doing any such thing. He goes on to say, How humbly do we each sing, Why was I made to hear your voice and enter where there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? I have often asked myself that question, and I've shared it with you in sermons. You know, why have I been given such a high privilege as to come and believe in Jesus Christ? Why have I been given such a high privilege as to come to believe in Him, to be given the gift, the gift of faith and repentance? If you've got saving faith this morning, that's a gift that God has given you. If you've repented of your sins and you've turned to Jesus Christ, it's because God has given you a gift to do so. And I've often asked myself, why me, Lord? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why you? Please don't let any of us think it's because we make better choices than our neighbors around us. That might be true in some regards. It's not true in this. You see, if we come to that conclusion, what are we doing to our neighbors who are around us? We're exalting ourselves above them, aren't we? And what are we doing? We're taking credit for a gift that's been given to us. We're taking credit. We're taking the glory from God. If any of us are believing in Jesus Christ this morning, it's because Jesus sought you, and it's because He pursued you, even while you were committing cosmic treason against Him. And He won your heart with His love. And I've often asked myself this question, why me, Lord? Why, why me? Have you asked yourself that question? And if you haven't received the gift of faith and repentance this morning, I, I pray that God will so fill your heart with a desire for saving faith and repentance that you'll want it more than you'll want life itself. I pray that He will do this. And... Something to keep in mind and something to tell everybody uh, are the words of James Boyce on this, on this subject. He says, quote, Never think that if you go back to God, you'll find Him reproachful or angry, distant, or vindictive. Let me explain that. When we've gone astray, sometimes we get it in our heads where we think, I can't just go back to God. I need to, get, uh, I need to shape up a little bit over here. Then, then I can go back to God. no. Please don't ever think that. No. Go back to Him just as you are and never think that you're going to find Him reproachful, angry, or vindictive. How, how can I say that? Look at verse 13. If He finds the lost sheep, I say to you, that God rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. When a sinner repents, what does God do? He rejoices. Isn't that amazing? And let's not read verse 13 and think that God loves the wayward sheep more than He loves the others. 
I think the best way to explain it is, you know, when there's a child in the family who is near death, so sick that he or she is near death, there is a sense in which the family cherishes that child probably more than anything, right? That's what's in view here. Uh, because the child uh, is so near death, uh, it's going to receive all the special attention. There's no favoritism in God. Favoritism is ugly, and there's no favoritism in God. Uh, he loves us all uh, equally. But here's a thought of the wonder of being found that I want to leave you with. When you repented of your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were found. And when you were found, the sovereign creator of the universe who's holding all of this together rejoiced over you. Isn't that amazing? He rejoiced over you. God cares for his sheep, the wonder of being found. The last point I'm not going to spend much time with. In fact, just say a few brief sentences about it. It's a passion for the lost, and I'm not going to say much about it because I think that the first two points are pointing to it and developing it. We see here God has such a tremendous passion for the lost. He has a tremendous passion for his lost children, and that is something that is to be communicated to us. You know, as those who have been found in Christ Jesus, our lives should be so transformed by that that uh, uh, we should want everybody to experience what we've experienced in God. Amen? And that passion for the lost should be communicated to our hearts or there's something wrong. Uh, that passion for, for lost people, people who, who don't know Jesus. And if you've been called like myself in adulthood, I mean, I can remember a lot of Sunday mornings where I was not in church. I did not know Jesus, not in a saving way. But now that my eyes have been opened and my heart has been opened, I want everybody to know about Jesus. And it's that passion, that passion for the lost that should be communicated to us. What are we going to be trying, what are we doing with our coffee hour? We're having a good time, no, no question about that. But what is the aim of that coffee hour? It's very specific. And we're going to guard this aim with everything. That aim has to be carefully guarded. It's to reach lost individuals. That is the aim of that, of that event. That's why we're doing it. Yes, we have lots of fun of it. We, we share food together. We have lots of fun together. It's fun playing music. It's fun listening to music. But the aim is for the lost. And it has to be carefully designed each time we do it. That, that aim is always there for the lost. Amen? We see the sovereign care of God, the wonder of being found, and the passion that God has for the lost. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you, O oh Lord, that you found us. O oh Lord, what a wonderful parable we have that really graphically illustrates just what you have done, Lord. You left heaven and you lived for 30 plus years walking upon this very earth, lived that perfect life, gave that life up at the cross to secure our salvation. And now, O oh Lord, you're pursuing your lost children 
And Lord, you have come to us and you have called us. Oh Lord, I pray that you'll help us to take inventory of what we have in Christ Jesus. That, oh Lord, you'll help us take inventory of Christ himself, that the governing principle of our lives would be him. That it would be you, oh Lord. Oh Lord, fill our hearts with the, the amazement of your care for us and the wonder of being found and a passion for the lost. And we, we do pray, oh Lord, these things in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen.